You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, passengers. Please make sure your pod seats are upright and your docking clamps have been sealed. It is time to brush to depart to the Functional Nerdverse. All right. Oof. In the event of a water landing, we're really, really, really far off course. Yeah, that's not, that's bad. No water landing. Don't want that. Um, so this the, is a fun... In the case, hold on. In the case of, okay. in the case, in the case of uh, loss of cabin pressure, a mask will fall down in front of you. Uh, you know, pull it to start the oxygen flow and put yep, it around your it. face. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're traveling with children, put your mask on first and pick your favorite now. <laughs> I have heard that, that um, thing so many times since, <laughs> since the trip to Colorado, both going there and going back. On the way back, we had a layover in Tulsa. Uh, it was the kind of layover where you sit on the plane, not the not the one where you have to deplane and get to another um, conveyance. Sure. So at least that helped a little bit. Uh, but yeah, really kind of, um, I think I want to rewrite my opening bit now because I'm kind of over planes, <laughs> I got to say. <laughs> uh, I should probably ask our guest about the merits of rewriting opening bits and, and things like that, um, because we, we have not had many writers more experienced than him on before. And, and plus a Functional Nerds alumni now, we've got Bob Salvatore is back with us again. How are are you, Bob? I'm doing pretty well. Fantastic. Except for a stupid air infection, I can't seem to shake. Oh, no. Oh, no. oh yeah. that's, I used, to, that's I used to suffer from the ear infections. They were terrible. I figured yeah. out how to surgery. fix them. I'm trying to figure out when I can get it, but we'll see. For me, yeah. the, the secret was to never, ever, ever, under any circumstances whatsoever, touch my ears. Like, yeah. no okay. Q-tips, no finger in the ear, none of that, because that was the cause of all of my problems. Well, I've got a really um, weird condition. This is actually interesting. <laughs> a few years ago, I had one right when I was going out to Wizards, and it was so bad. I like, I was, I would wake up in the morning and be blood on the pillow, basically. Oh my god! Oh, no. Yeah, it was brutal. So I actually went to see a an eye and ear guy, and he looked in my ear and he said, "Because I had been on antibiotics." He said, Did "Anyone look at this?" I said, "No." The doctor just gave me antibiotics. He said, "I can't even see your eardrum." They thought I had a tumor in my ear. Oh, wow. And I had to do an MRI and stuff. But then I went to Mass Eye and Ear and they found out, no, um, it's not a tumor. You have a growth. It's not a tumor. It's not yeah. a tumor. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, like Tuma, Arizona. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, they asked me if I ever swam in cold water. Okay. And I said, well, my pool's heated, solar heated. And they said, no, when you were a kid. And I said, mm-hmm. sure. We used to camp on a lake every summer. Yeah. And, uh. They said they see it in divers where the bone right behind your ear will continue to grow right into the ear canal. And then it gets like a fingertip stuff around it. So I have like this little flap in my ear, which causes me to get ear infections. That's crazy. It's crazy. And I said, so what do we do? And they said, well, we'll it's a, we have to knock you out and do a surgery to get rid of it. Oh. Um, and I, I said, well, if I don't do anything, then what? Because this is the first time I'd had an ear infection in many, many years. They said, probably nothing. So that started getting worse a couple of years ago. But with COVID, I said, nah, I'm yeah. not going to do it until COVID's over. I'm not going into a into a hospital if I don't have to. They're all busy. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. But here this year, it just came roaring back all of a sudden. Wow. Yeah. That, that so is... now I have to go have my ear operated on. It sounds like fun. <laughs> That is absolutely crazy. I have never heard of that before. They said they see it in divers. I've never heard of it either. 
I just I made a I made a spectacular face while that description was going on there that does not translate onto onto audio and it's probably just as well. But yeah, that was a journey, man. I think it's a defense mechanism. So if I don't like people, I just turn my head like this and I'll hear them. Oh yeah, that would go. Yeah, you can just be like it's an, I'm it's sorry. An what? Evolutionary yeah. thing, right? Yeah, you've sort of um, you've, you've evolved that that trick that most people just fake doing. But you know, at least you know you're being honest. So. So you're coming back to, to join us here because pandemic be damned. You've been a very busy man here. <laughs> you're two books into the way of the drow series. And uh, th- there's, there's another book, which is as far as I can tell the first of its kind in your oeuvre um, where you're sort of looking at the philosophy of Dritzt and that's, that's coming out in September. So you're just, you're tired, man. Right. I just like, well, when the pandemic hit, it's like, oh, you got to stay home. I don't know what to do. I've been preparing for this for 30 years. <laughs> You're like, so so for me, day, it's right? like, what, what are you talking about? What's going on out in the world? I don't know. I'm just, my days haven't changed. Mm-hmm. But um, the Tao of Dritz is actually, it's, it's just a collection of all the essays from all the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than anything else. So most of those are already written. We're just putting them all together. People keep asking. The power of They editing. want them all together. Yeah. And actually, I was just um, talking with Victor Bavine, who does the audio books for Dritz. Yeah. And, he, and he said that um, it's really weird reading them all together. He's getting such an insight, more insight into the character. Because normally you read one, then you read the section of the book, then you read part two, then you read part two of the book, then you read the essay for part three, read part three, you know, through 30 something books. Sure. But now they're all collected together. What I'm really excited about it is um, the forward was written yeah. by... Um, Evan Winter, gonna, wasn't I it? I give, oh, you know that. Okay, I wasn't sure yeah. I was able to give it away yet. Evan Winter wrote the forward. Well, I, I, just, I think it, I think it must be legal to give it away because it's on Amazon. So. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> I don't generally serve yeah. <laughs> Amazon, right, but um, yeah. it's uh, the forward kind of uh, almost brought a tear to my eye. So that oh. made me feel good. It was like validation for what I've been trying to do for so many years. That's, That's awesome. really wonderful. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've also, in the meantime, written two Demon Wars books, which aren't out yet. So I've been really busy. Yeah, but I mean, in a very good way. So, well, congratulations for that. Yeah. So you you mentioned before, like, you know, going to Wizards and and having your first sort of ear experience there. Have you been going back to the the con scene? Have you been back out in in that capacity yet? Or is that... Uh, Gen Con and ECCC, both August this year, were my... On my returns to conventions, uh, I'm looking forward. Uh, I haven't been on the road at all. I've been I've been looking forward to it for a year, and we'll see how it goes. As as I do a few of them, I'll probably get sick of it again. <laughs> I've, I've I've told Tracy this, and you know I've talked to some friends locally here. It feels like the muscles for conventions have have atrophied. It's like it's like having to relearn how to convention. I've it's been hearing really that from weird. a lot of people, not in those words, but that it's because because you think, oh, it's a convention. I've done I've done plenty of these. You know, it's just like, oh, let's 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 go, and then you get there and you're like, oh, I'm exhausted. I I what the hell's going on? Yeah, it's crazy. You also got to be very careful of what mm-hmm. you say, yeah, yeah. and yeah. how you say it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of us, um, either because of COVID or or because of you know, um, 
which I guess is related to COVID, you know, a lot of a lot of conventions being canceled or moved online and maybe not choosing to partake in those sorts of venues. There, there hasn't been as many opportunities to like be in the larger community, having conversations about the media that you love and the stories that you love and the art that you love and all these different sorts of things. And so I think it's it's kind of like there's there's a set of social muscles going back to your description there, Patrick, that I think for a lot of us have been exercised maybe really just online recently. And most of us live in fairly curated online spaces where we have a sense of like who we're talking to and what we're talking about. Um, And I think it becomes really different in a convention, particularly if you're going to be on panels and interacting with people as a professional sort of showcasing your work and talking to fans. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, I'm sure, a balancing act for you, Bob, in the sense of like being present as yourself and as as much a capacity as you can be, but also being present as the person people are expecting. I don't know if I'm phrasing that clearly. No, I get exactly what you're saying, and I, and I think that's one of the better ways I've heard it phrased because there's always a difference between R.A. Salvatore and Bob Salvatore, yeah. right? There has to be yeah. because when you go out there, I mean, I'm the guy that's like. A kid comes in my house the other day to do the insulation in my office. He sees my bookcase and realizes, and he and, he and his two compatriots there are completely freaked out. <laughs> but I'm just Bob at home. Right, yeah. yeah. So I can yeah. handle that easily. But at a convention, it's a little different. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like you're putting on a different face because you're really not doing that. Mm-hmm. You just have to be more aware of the fact that if I stop, for example, if somebody comes up to me in the hallway – depending on the convention, and I don't know if it's still this way because it's been three years now, if someone stops me in the hallway and asks for an autograph, my instinct is, sure, why not? But if you do that, you may be late for your panel because 30 other people come running up. Mm -hmm. So there there are things you have to kind of be able to do, and and you also hope the people around you are handling it correctly. Like if I have a long line at a signing and I know I got one hour to do a signing, and there's a lot of people there. And somebody comes up with 30 books to sign. Ouch. Yeah. I can't be the one to say no. Mm-hmm. And I'll happily sign the books. Mm-hmm. It's just maybe go to the end of the line, get a couple yeah. signed and go to the end of the line, keep doing that. Mm-hmm. But that's what the people around you have to help you with stuff like that. And the other thing is the convention seems different now for people, uh, professionals going there. Because like when I used to go to the conventions, it was the publishers sending Sure. So the publishers took care of everything. Yeah. It was basically, we'll pick. You'll be picked up at the airport here. Here's where you go get your badge. These are where you have to the places you have to be in the times. The publishers are very stepped back from all of that stuff now. Yeah. Um, they basically tell authors, okay, if you want to do book sign this, let us know where and when. <laughs> yeah. We'll send you bookmarks. You know. Yeah. That whole a- part of publishing has has diminished tremendously. I, I recently heard, and this was not at a convention, there was a, there was a book launch party. And it was, there was a couple of authors there. And one of them is ridiculously prolific and has just tons and tons of books out. And they, they, you know, they did this little, uh, almost like a, I guess we could call it an intimate you know, book launch party at a, at a local place that they liked. And someone showed up with basically uh, every book they had ever written. Sure. Oh, wow. In a in a big box, wanting them yeah. all signed. And to your yeah. point, there's no publisher there. There's no one. There's no team to handle anything. 
it's just like, well, you know, I've got I've got lots of people standing in line. Uh, why don't you stand over here, and I'll sign a couple books, and then I'll sign a couple of your books, then I'll sign a couple of books, and I'll sign a couple of your books, and kind of get through it that way. Yeah, yeah. But at, yeah. you know, at the conventions, generally speaking, I love fandom. I, I, not not my fans, if you will. I don't I don't think of it that way. I think of it as people on the same journey I'm on, and. I like I'll be sitting and having dinner and someone will come up, but they're usually very polite. Sure. Yeah. And to me, that's a thrill. It's not a bad thing. So yeah. sometimes it can get overhandled. Sure. You know, um, yeah, you, you I'm, I'm looking be... forward. I'm looking forward to being back. I have, I have a couple of book signings coming up. I have a big talk at Fitchburg State University coming up. Um, I, I'm curious to see if I can still got it. Because <laughs> I used to be really good at this stuff. No, I, I yeah. did. If I when I used to do my convention, my uh, panels, my solo panels at Gen Con, nobody would leave there wasn't laughing and having a good time. Sure, it, it's almost like a stand-up comedian shtick. You learn, sure, and and if you do it year after year after year after year, you learn. You see what things work, what things don't work, so you get a little better at it. It's like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And you know, I'll be sitting there doing a thing, and someone will say, "Do wubba wubba." which is a story that I have about a, 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 a wand of wonder mm-hmm. from my gaming group. And half the people in the room have heard it, but they want to hear it again. Sure. So it yeah. becomes like this big club of fun and friendship, you know? Yeah. And we'll see how it goes. I'm excited. Well, I, you know, point about <laughs> watching what you say, I tend to be very controversial at conventions because, you know, I, 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 I brook no argument that Chicago is the best pizza and that Yankees get barbecue wrong. So uh, those are those are two very polarizing topics. That, what was the second one? Yankees what? Yankees, Yankees get, get barbecue, barbecue wrong. wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yankees get everything wrong. <laughs> I'm talking about the team. So yeah, so yeah. I'm so I'm curious, Tracy. What what? So we have the uh, you mentioned the Dow. Uh, what's the other book? It's Glacier's Edge, but I'm going to let the expert talk about it. It's the second book in the series. It's picking okay. up after a very, very, very kind of consequential ending of the first book. Where everybody's, um, a lot of the big characters are in really bad trouble. And I Maybe think let's, yeah, let's not bury the lead here. Then we're talking about a lot of really big characters. There are a lot of characters who are showing up in the way of the Drow series that are characters that your readers have kind of grown up alongside and grown up with. We've got Cadbury. We've sort of uh, we're, we're pulling Dritz back into the mix. We've got um, we've and got Sherry, a whole sort of um, yeah. yeah a whole sort of like multi generational uh, group of the heroes that have been the bread and butter of your your sort of brand for a really long time. So it's um, to say that it's it's at this dramatic point is um, kind of bearing the lead a little bit there. You got some, you got some important <laughs> well, how people. Does, in how do they get out of this one? Is 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 the best way to keep job security when you're writing a series, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Um, and do they get out of this one? Because I can't say they all will. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and right now I'm writing a third book, actually, the, the right. finale, if you will, mm-hmm. and um, this book was. I think more action packed than a lot of the books I've been doing lately because I've been setting up for the last two of this series, which is, you know, the end of Glacier's Edge is one of the biggest battle scenes I've ever written. 
-hmm. It gets very involved. Unlikely heroes. Uh, the best heroes can't do what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, some people you love may be gone for good. And I won't even say maybe, will be. Um, and that's setting up the third book, which is a civil war in Menzo Baron's mm -hmm. And that's kind of the full circle of Dritt's journey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in your civil war, are you, are you team cap or, or team Iron Man? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> <laughs> there are no equivalents in this particular, this, this particular civil war. So one of the things I've been thinking about, though, and thinking about um, this particular trilogy and sort of looking back over sort of the, the body of your work is you've written standalones, you've written trilogies, you've written quintets, like you've written stories of, of various sizes that have been able to stand independently and stretched over sort of different lengths. Have you discovered that for telling the kind of stories that you want to tell most, that there is a, a format that, you know, if you have your druthers and you can make a publisher do what you want them to do, um, you'd like to be able to do a story in this many units? Yeah. And I don't know what this many is because right. uh, what I really like doing is creating a world or in the case of the forgotten realms, adding to the creation of the world. Um, you know, and then developing a group of characters in that room, in that world, and just keep expanding it. Every side character I see as a side street to explore. And that's how I do it. And staying with that group of characters, it amazed me because you think, isn't it going to get stale for me as the writer? But it didn't. Apparently, it hasn't for the readers either. They're still doing really well. People are still enjoying them. Uh, because... I'm watching the characters grow by putting them under pressure and asking them the questions that I have as I age, mm -hmm. as I grow. I mean, I wrote the first Dritz book in 1987, right? So I was 28 years old. I'm 63 now. I have a very different outlook about life. Back then, I thought I knew everything, and my job as a writer was to tell people. Now I know I know nothing. <laughs> and my job as a writer is to get people to ask questions so they can figure out their own answers. Yeah. And so I love doing that. I, I, you know, I do it in the realms. I do it in my Demon Wars series. My Demon Wars yeah. series started out of seven books. I developed an entire social structure and magic system and, you know, the whole world in those base seven books. Then I went back 800 years to the beginning of the church that we read about in the seven books and did the Highwayman series, four books there. Then I did the Coven series a few years ago, which is a different part of the same continent of the world that will collide with the ending of the original series. Yeah. And now I'm doing Pirates that follows up on the Coven series. As one does. you know, Which yeah. is a logical outgrowth of what happens in the end of the Coven series. Because the end of the Coven series, we have it's almost a colonial situation right. where you have people basically becoming in servitude or second class citizens to an empire. And that's when you get pirates. It's not you, pirates. I love writing about pirates. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mentioned uh, that not only have like, you not gotten bored with it, but like the readers are still coming back, right? Uh, it's interesting that. 
two months ago, I want to say, I was trolling Audible and a ton of your stuff came up on sale. And I grabbed them because number one, I love audiobooks. Uh, number two, you know, it's Bob. But the thing, like, I've read, I've read Dungeons and Dragons books, I've read um, the Pathfinder books, different ones. The ones that I tend to like, which you do this really well, are the ones where you know it's part of the game, but the game mechanics aren't there, but oh, they sure. are. If that makes sense, it's like these yeah. things are happening, and and you know that they're happening inside the game, but you don't feel like the game mechanics are being pushed in your face. The books that I don't like are the ones where it feels like I'm constantly being, you know, here's the game mechanics, here's the game mechanics coming into sure. the story. I don't like that. You don't do that. No, that I don't sense. do that. Um, and here's the thing. I look at the world that I'm writing in. It's almost like I'm writing a history book from our world. And I look at the magic in the world like the technology in our world. So I've, I've set my boundaries. If I'm writing a book about the Civil War, I know, what the, I know what the guns look like. I know what the cannons look like. I know the geography. Um, if I'm writing a book about the Forgotten Realms, I know the geography. I know the magic system, which are the guns and the cannons, right? Uh, but to use the game rules are very restrictive and they're not yeah. just restrictive, but they serve a different purpose. You know, people talk about my characters coming back a lot. They do in the Dritz series. They come back mm -hmm. for either they weren't dead in the first place and you just thought they were. Or in one case, there was a resurrection for a purpose, which was because wizards decided to uh, advance the Forgotten Realms 100 years and basically kill everybody. And Ed Greenwood and I decided sneakily after we left the meeting that they would come back to us in about five years and ask us to fix it. And this is how we were going to do it. <laughs> and anyway, that's a whole different I'd say story. I told you so, but. <laughs> oh, Ed and I walked out of the meeting and Ed's like, Bob, what are we going to do? I said, well, we're gonna, we've, got, we've got years to figure that out. So let's figure out how we're going to do it. Because you know they're going to come back to us in a few years and say, oops, we screwed up. Yeah. And sure as heck, four I years really later, they that. came back and said, we should not have advanced the realms, which is what Ed and I were telling them over and over again. Don't do that. <laughs> we want to give people a place to jump in. I said, you're giving people a place to fall off. Yeah. And it showed. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the game, my point is in the game, there are easy ways to bring back characters all the time. Sure. Right? Yeah. They have to be. Um, or people wouldn't play. Uh, but also, you're not going to have a wizard like, I think I'll take these spells today. You know, that's, that's a game mechanic. That's not yeah. life. That's not the way people act. Mm -hmm. So. Well, a lot of the game mechanics exist to create and to support the challenges of storytelling that a dungeon master faces. Exactly. But if yeah. you're writing a novel and you have any idea of what you're doing, which I think we can agree at this point that you do. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with that at all. Oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll round up for you and say you do. Um, I'm always surprised when it comes when it's finished. Yeah, hey, it did somebody it. I do seems that? to think I knew what I was doing. Jesus. Um, but anyway, if you're if you're writing a novel and then you are capable of producing the challenge from both the direction of the characters' choices and the direction of sort of the larger plot and things the characters may or may not know about. Game mechanics are often about 
trying to level the playing field between the the dungeon master's choices as a plotter and planner and the player's choices and options as this sort of um, difficult to predict force that gets thrown into the story that they're trying to tell. And so you don't need game mechanics to create challenge and structure and limits for a novelist. You need the game mechanics perhaps as a source of inspiration. But, you know, the, as the novelist, you create all of those things that the game mechanics are otherwise present to do. Yeah, also as, as a boundary, because you need yeah. a boundary or everything's deus ex machina, right? Right, yeah. right, um, yeah. I did one time, I just did it as a challenge to myself when I think I was writing the book Neverwinter. It was in that series, mm-hmm. that four book series when fourth edition came out. And I did a battle uh, – <laughs> An anatomically correct fourth edition battle. Okay. Yeah. That almost killed me. I think it came out okay, but I would never do that again. I just wanted I, uh, to see if I could do it. Um, I remember when, when Vox Machina came out on Amazon, uh, which is a great show. It's animated and, and it's funny and it's it's raunchy and it's great. But talking to my friends about it who play D&D and I'm like, all of these characters are wildly OP. Like they're doing shit that that no one can do, and and everybody agreed and said yeah, but it's still entertaining, right? Yeah. And I kind of feel like that that's what we're like. We we want a story that's entertaining. We want characters that that move us and that we get invested in. Uh, when the game mechanics come into the story is when it's like ah, fuck! I know the author just rolled a d twenty. Come on. <laughs> I don't know if it's quite that, but it could be. Well, the yeah. other thing is the other thing is that don't forget that um, kind of the way the entertainment world is now is you got to be over the top, right? So yeah. you got to be bigger, better, and better, right? Because it's awesome. I have heard that, yes. And you know, it's funny to me because, and we'll get into this a little bit when we do the pick of the week. <laughs> um, but people miss the point of subtlety, and because they're looking for that big bad over the top thing all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we've really lost in popular culture. Yeah. Is um, the quiet moments that define a hero or define a character, as opposed to being able to make that one pose when you jump down 30 feet and land at one pose, you know? Yeah. 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 Everyone seems to copy in every show they do. has to be something more than aesthetic. Um, And I guess kind of thinking about, what grabs audiences and what, you know, how things gain traction. Um, A a couple of years ago, when I first started on the podcast with uh, Patrick, we had a guest on a guy named Ben Riggs, who was working on a history of, uh, of TSR and Dungeons and Dragons and so on. And actually that book has just come out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and his book uh, that he was kind of teasing with us because at the time he was still shopping it with his agent has just come out like as of today recording a couple of days ago. And one of the most interesting parts of it for me, uh, as I've been flipping through a sample of it is some of the sales data over time. And this ties into the conversation we're having now, because one of the things that jumps out from one of the graphs, you can find a, a copy of it up on Reddit that Ben Riggs himself has shared Um, is that in the first 12 years that it was published, the Forgotten Realms campaign setting vastly outsold all other campaign settings that TSR came out with from 1979 to 1999. 
its nearest competitors, uh, to give you a sense of scale here for folks who, who kind of want to sense the numbers, the actual number of units sold in that first 12-year period from when it published in 87 to 1999, where TSR itself kind of went in a different direction and the Wizards of the Coast thing came into being, was 4, 000, uh, I'm sorry, 443,636 copies of the campaign setting. To put that into perspective, that's almost double the number of um, units that Dragonlance sold, which had actually been published two years earlier than that, so they had a head start. Um, it's four times the number that Lankmar ever sold in all of its years, and it had like a five-year head start. Um, and it's three times the number of Ravenloft, which is also one of the big memorable flagship settings. Um, so I guess what I'm building to here is, why do you suppose it is the realms have had the traction that they've had? It's easy. Um, it's an easy answer. The yeah. realms were undefined mm-hmm. when they came out. If you look at the original gray box set of the Forgotten Realms, you had guideposts, you had stakes in the ground, and you had this vast area for you to develop as a dungeon master. Yeah, everything was okay. potentially home. The authors in the realms, when we came in, this was my big fight with TSR when I actually left in the mid-90s after a big fight. When we came in, they told us, take a place, create it. It's yours. Make characters, they're yours. They may do cameos in other books, but they're yours. So I did Icewind Dale. I did Menzo. I did um, The Spirit Soaring and with the Catherly books. I did, you know, all of these. Long Saddle was a little, was a little um, tiny little paragraph in the great box set. Yeah, And so I talked to Ed Greenwood. I said, here's what I want to do with Longsaddle. What do you think? And he loved it. So I got to do that. Other people did that with different areas of the realm. So you had creative people being able to be creative without having shackles on. Mm-hmm. Dragonlance was much more claustrophobic. It was brilliant stuff. But you're following Margaret and Tracy's characters, sure. guidelines, and it's a very small world for that. And there's one culture, one one set of religions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was much there's much more freedom in the realms for creative people to go and make the realms diverse. Ravenloft was I thought Ravenloft some of the Ravenloft modules were the best modules that TSR ever put out, honestly, some of them. They were there was some brilliant some stuff. Really- like bizarre and stunning storytelling going on in those early yeah, they, but, they yeah. made, but they made some big mistakes, I think, with Ravenloft. And one was, we're going to copy all the classic horror books, barely change the name and throw it yeah. out there. This it was, is Adam. Trust us, got, he's not the monster of Frankenstein. That got, that got um, cheesy, if you yeah. will. Mm-hmm. But you look at some of the early Ravenloft stuff before they did that. Christy Golden's Vampire of the Mists. It was a fantastic book. I mean, look, Christie's had a wonderful career. And that book, anyone that read that book knows why she's had a wonderful career and still is yes. having mm-hmm. a wonderful career over at Blizzard now. Mm-hmm. Because she's a heck of a writer and a heck yes. of a storyteller. And that book is just damn good. And yeah, there were Stra- other ones. Stra- there were a lot of them. Lord Soth was a great book. There were a lot of the early Ravenloft books were fantastic. And then they yeah. got kind of cheesy. Yeah. So they yeah. never really gave it its breathing room. That it needed. And they had too many authors doing single books or two books instead of being able to develop characters. One of the things I hate about the realms where it went is that really Ed and I were the only ones who were allowed to continue to grow our characters. It takes Mm. time. Yeah. It takes time. I mean, 
you know, Troy Denning, Aaron Evans, Elaine Cunningham. These people are fantastic writers. There were a whole bunch of them, but they were never given the time to develop those characters and make them a storyline that became part of someone's life. Yeah. And I think yeah. the realms suffered from that. But the realms is the biggest thing about the realms is it lets you be creative. Mm-hmm. See, you yeah. are not shoehorned anywhere. You're, you're reminding me of the early days of Star Trek novels. So in the early days of the Star Trek novels, uh, there wasn't really anyone going, no, no, you can't do that. And so the authors who were writing the Star Trek novels, the DC Fontanas, the Diane Duane, different people, uh, they were they were just running with it and they were making an inter- interconnected continuity, really. And things that appeared in one person's book would appear in someone else's and they just kind of built the universe. And then it got to a point and then someone somewhere said, oh, shit, we got to stop this. And, and then they put in all the rules. You know, there's no interconnectivity. Nothing relates to anything else. Your book is standalone. Your book is standalone. And then they start, you know, enforcing all the rules on it. The expanded universe in Star Wars is not canon. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's just biz- those are just business decisions. Sure. And not creative decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose in that sense, the story you're telling of the the space you and Ed Greenwood and, and others were, were offered in those early days of the Forgotten Realms, that's the kind of, that's a privilege of the early days of that, of that brand coming into being, and also a very different market at the time, a market that wasn't hypersaturated in the same way. In a lot of ways, um, TSR was I mean, with respect to other things like White Wolf or Traveler or other things, there—I mean, there were other um, publishers of RPGs, but there weren't as many uh, RPG publishers that were also investing in developing fiction. And you weren't competing with computer games, yeah, right. And so now there's there's all these sort of like multiple uh, streams for the attention of multiple potential audiences, and the sort of expansion of the of the genre itself. Well, on the one hand, super exciting. Um, it's wonderful to have fandom be so huge. On the other hand, oh no, fandom is so huge. We need some way to compartmentalize and monetize and control it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and the world has changed. Um, we are mainstream. Yeah. For years they said, oh, fantasy is going mainstream and it did. Fantasy is going mainstream and it did. We're mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Whether it's through the Marvel movies, the Tolkien movies, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter. Fantasies means stranger things, right? Right. It's 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 ubiquitous. It's it, and and it also means it's more diverse, which I think makes it stronger. But it also makes it harder to make a living at it for a lot of people. Yeah. And harder to be successful as a business for a lot of people. And I'll throw it out there: The Witcher as well. Uh, right. Oh yeah. yeah. Television yeah. property. I love The Witcher. But the, I think the Witcher, the Witcher made funny. me read the books. I, I hadn't really read all yeah. the books. And so when I saw that The Witcher was coming and that they were going to be using the books more than the video games as a source material, that got me to go and read those books and just go, oh, my God, why, why have I not read these before? These are fantastic. Well, see, the thing that changed, and The Witcher is one of them, but I think even before that was The Fellowship of the Rings Yeah, when that came out. The thing that changed is back in the 80s, if you were a fantasy fan, you had a few movies that were worth watching. Conan, uh, Dragon Slayer was oh, a, yeah, wonderful, love that one. a yeah. wonderful fantasy yep. movie. And there were so many others that 
Lady we're almost Hawk. insulting to your hobby because they wouldn't take it seriously. Okay, they, they weren't quite sure whether they were going to do uh, Ivanhoe or Monty Python's Holy Grail. So they came up with something in the middle of it that satisfied no one. They, they, a lot of, at that time, there was a lot of B-movies that were just terrible. That, that kind of got like direct-to-video, direct-to-cable. Uh, oh, the people doing the... it didn't understand the people who wanted to see it. I'm trying to remember the name of the stupid, stupid movie. I can't remember the name of it now, but it even got a sequel, and that was even stupider. Yeah, it was like direct, to, direct you'll sit to bolt upright in the dead of night with that I name. will, I will. <laughs> I don't remember what it was called, but yeah. But so yeah, but no, what stuff. the Fellowship of the Ring did is it showed you can take something serious, fantasy seriously and make it as a serious movie, mm-hmm. and people will love it. Yeah. That was yeah. absolutely... You know, bolstered by the Harry, I mean, the Harry Potter movies did the same thing, but for kids, for younger audience, mostly, although I know a lot of adults that loved them. Mm-hmm. And the um, Game of Thrones did that and yeah. really set a bar. And now we'll see if, you know, if some of the new shows that are coming are going to meet that bar. Yeah, because yeah. I remember a lot of people that had zero interest in any of this stuff raving every Monday morning about Game of Thrones. Sure. Yeah. Yep. And I think that for, for all, that's one of the reasons why we kind of, I guess, in this embarrassment of riches uh, within genre, now kind of need to think carefully about what we're picking. So, do you like that segue? Did I do a really good job? Is that huh? <laughs> You did. You're, you're ready for picks of the week, aren't you? I am. Okay. Picks of the week. All right. So um, having talked a little bit about the, the sales numbers for different um, Dungeons and Dragons settings and so on, uh, I mentioned Ravenloft, partly because I thought the stats were interesting as a comp, but also because it's been on my mind uh, because of the board game that hit the table in Shea Townsend last night. Um, so as folks who listen to the podcast regularly know, we do a ton of board gaming stuff over here in the Townsend household. And there's a game that I ordered for my husband uh, by, by backing on Kickstarter way back at Christmas time. It was like his, his big Christmas gift, but here it's just a printout of the Kickstarter in an envelope. Sorry. Um, it's finally physically arrived. And with it, um, we also finally have the app that goes with it because it's a partially app driven um, board game. It's called my father's work. And as you might guess from the title, the whole idea behind my father's work is you are the child of a disgraced and failed mad scientist. And you have been obsessed by your distant and uncaring father figure uh, with whom you were not raised, but sort of had this like idolized, uh, distant relationship with for a while. And now that he's passed, you have gone to his manor house and found his notebooks and you've decided, by God, I'm going to try to complete my father's work. (laughs) And so the idea behind my father's work is you and however many other players are at the table um, are each in this same situation of being the descendant of a mad scientist and you you have your own manor house and you take on a spouse um, what and you you have a, a servant a sort of like Igor like figure a Renfield like figure who works for Igor. you and runs into town to do Igor um, runs into town to do your errands um, and the game plays out over three generations the idea is of course each generation is going to screw it up somehow that's how mad scientists do right they try and make something and then the villagers burn 
burn down the castle or what have you. So you play the game out over three generations of your family line. And there's like the early years, middle years, late years of each generation. And each generation faces a different kind of challenge. And within this game are three different sub modules. And within each sub module, uh, there's a theme like one is about diseases and stuff. One is about civil warfare. One is about sort of the paranoia of the mob. And depending on which one of these boxes you crack open with the folks you're playing at the table, it kind of provides a different core narrative that has literally hundreds of different branching opportunities uh, throughout. Like the amount of writing that went into this is just absolutely massive. And so you have these amazing components. They've got real metal gears that represent tools for engineering. They've got real metal coins. They've got little glass bottles that you can trick out and fill with stuff yourself if you want to that represent like Um, chemical components and whatnot. So you're constantly taking on new experiments, trying to fulfill them to sort of earn points that represent your family's accomplishment and honor. And you carry those through the generations uh, to the end where you hopefully become a successful mad scientist who has terrorized the peasantry, but also not been murdered by them. Um, And it has a really wonderful sense of humor about itself. It is very dark in a lot of ways, but in a very winking kind of way, like it recognizes opportunities to be satirical about this sort of gothic horror genre that it sits within. Um, The app-driven element is very organic and fun. It has great narrative voices. It has a soundtrack that runs in the background. Uh, The component quality is ridiculously high. It is not a game for the faint of heart, by which I mean it runs long. So we had two players on it last night. Um, I was actually just watching the game being played for the most part because I was just kind of I'm, I'm one of those idiots who like watches other people do stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was watching this game be played, uh, which was honest to God, almost as fun as playing it myself. And um, it took almost three hours to get through the whole game. So it's a long one. It's going to be like a two to three hour long experience, depending on A, how many players and B, how analysis paralysis do they tend to get about their decision making. But it's got pretty much every type of game mechanic you could want. There's card drafting things happening. There's resource management things happening. There's um, worker placement things happening. There's secret objectives happening. There's a narrative thread with uh, low-key RP choice making happening. Um, honest to God, it's just, it's a wonderful ride and it's a very high quality game. So if you can find a copy of my father's work to check out, and if you're sort of into whether seriously or in a tongue in cheek way, kind of gothic horror things, you'll get a real kick out of it. That sounds awesome. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so Bob, how about you? You said you had to pick. I gotta follow that. <laughs> yes. Unless right. you want me to follow it. Go ahead. All right, I'll go. So, so terrible. I got a, I got a, I got a theme here, uh, kind of, sorta. Uh, I made, and I posted this on our, on our, on our locked patrons group. I made a horrendously gigantic mistake. I play a game called Toon Blast, which is just stupid. It's just a mind emptying game that I play, and Tracy knows this because she saw me every once in a while sitting there with my phone playing the stupid thing. I also have it. That's on my a iPad. colorful blocks. Yeah. yeah, I also have it on my iPad, and you get five lives, and when your lives are done, you have to wait like 30 minutes to get another life to continue the game. So I did that the other night, and I was like, I just want something to do. And so I start going through Apple's list of games, and this is where I made my huge mistake. I downloaded Magic the Gathering, the arena. <laughs> and uh, as longtime listeners know, I was a, a magic player from back in the day. 
you guys can't see it on the video, but there are actually boxes, long boxes for cards on yeah. my shelf over here that are full of Magic the Gathering cards. And uh, I dated someone a few years back who was still playing Magic, had just started playing Magic and was really into it. And so I would go to, uh, I'd go pick her up and we would go to the local game shop and we would sit there and I took my cards and they, they, you know, all these people are there playing and I would start shuffling my cards and dead silence would fall in the room because number one, I don't have sleeves and number two, I'm fucking shuffling my cards. And like, no one does that anymore. And uh, so I did that for a little bit. And then I got, you know, we broke up and then I, I stopped playing Magic again. So I just thought, well, this this looks like it could be fun. I'll do this. Oh my God, like seven hours later. <laughs> you wake up <laughs> I, smeared I in burned, popcorn. I, I burned <laughs> through the battery on the iPad. I had to plug it in to continue playing because I was so into it. So and what I'm hearing is, is they need some kind of mechanism where somehow you die oh. and then you have to spend a half an hour off because it sounds yeah. to me like whatever the other game was, was it was looking out for you, bro. It was it trying was. to keep this from yeah. happening. This game, they give you, they, they, they basically take you down each color track. So you start with white and then you go to uh, blue and then black, uh, mm-hmm. red and green. And you, you kind of do tutorials. And at the end of each one of these, if you finish, you get the decks. And then you get to start you then as you continue playing, you get cards and you get booster packs and they're doing a Baldur's Gate thing right now. So it's, it's basically playing in Baldur's Gate, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but yeah, I ended up playing that and it's, it's fun. It's addictive. Uh, my pick this week, uh, but with the caveat of don't fucking download it, stay away from it, <laughs> go do something else more productive, my God. Like I woke up this morning and I said, oh, you know, I got a couple hours before I have to do the podcasting stuff and I'm staring at my iPad. I'm like, hmm, I could take that. And No, 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 don't, oh, don't. My. You won't get anything else done. Leave it there. Walk <laughs> yeah. away. Walk away. Back in the day, Husbeast had a, a blue-black deck he called the Bruise. Mm. <laughs> he liked to play that and, and wreck people with it. I remember having a green deck that basically was, all I needed was one forest. And every other creature in the whole deck was only took one, one green mana. Mm. And they all had the ability to tap and create one-one creatures. Oh. And so I would just sit there and I just started and I had pennies and I just started and my friends are playing. We play what we call chaos magic, which is like six people at the table all playing at the same time. And uh, I'm just having these one, one creatures, one, one creatures, and no one's paying any attention to me at all. So I'm just sitting in my little corner, bringing out my little one, one creatures and tapping them and bringing out more one, one creatures. And I just and I had like a dollar fifty in pennies sitting in front of me before someone looked over and said, uh, what the fuck is Patrick doing? And I'm like, making you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. God. Uh, uh, Bob, can you, you go, give Bob. us a recommendation that people shouldn't actually run away from? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll stop by saying I can follow that one because it asked me how many games of magic I've won in my life. Mm. How many games of magic have you won in your life? I've never played. <laughs> there you go. My sons are both game designers, one of them very, very high-level game designer, and I wouldn't even go near it playing <laughs> against him and something like that. I guess they'll beat him at chess, though. There you go. There you go. But, uh, yeah, I've never I've never gotten into magic. They did. I have uh, – my office is like – I have drawers full of magic cards. 
Probably some really expensive ones from way back. I shouldn't say that out loud. People break. <laughs> I probably um, also have some expensive ones. Yeah. yeah. That with no sleeves that you shuffle like no a monster. Sleeves, black no sleeves, black borders. Shuffle, yeah. Nineties. Yep. Yeah. I've signed a bunch of Dritz cards lately. Dritz oh, nice. and Guinevere, and yeah. All right, so I'm supposed. To, this is pick of the week means something. I think people should go and take a look at. Yes. Right. Doesn't yeah. have to be a game. Yeah. Nope. It could okay. be whatever, man. Anything. Let, watch the, last the show. One, I picked a documentary. You know how you get to the end of the season on all your shows, they kind of all end. And a lot of them ended for good, finally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them should have ended a few years ago, but I'm a completionist, so I had to keep going. Sure. I won't mention The Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, they said it was going to be in two parts, and now it's in three parts. It's like, will yeah. you just end the damn thing, please? They're just lying. That and yeah, Fear yeah. the Walking Dead. They won't end them. Oh, but anyway. And- and, and there's a trailer coming out of SDCC. It's called Tales from the Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah. I'm well, just going to say real you. quick, I, why are we surprised that the zombie show refuses to die? I mean, yeah, I mean, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, Michael Myers, The Walking Dead. Uh, so, you know, you get to the end of the season and you're kind of, all your shows kind of, you have to wait a few months for them to drop again. So you try new things, right? Yep. And. Sometimes we hit and sometimes we miss, and usually we find something pretty good. And um, so this year, we had we had watched the show called Longmire, which was okay. It was pretty yeah. good, a little western kind yeah. of modern western, pretty good. And everybody was raving about this other show, Yellowstone. But before we watched Yellowstone, and there was a show on that caught my eye. It's called 1883. Yeah, and it's the prequel to Yellowstone. And I watched this show, and I was absolutely, completely blown away by some of the writing, some of the performances. So I went and I looked at the reviews for the show, and most of them are really positive. They caught the same things I did with the show, but some of them were really bad. <laughs> and they said, oh, the teen romance just ruins the whole thing. And... Oh, it's told from the white man's perspective of the West again, and they're all the heroes and stuff. And I thought, they completely missed it. There are no heroes in this show. There were just people. Sam Elliott's not a hero in this show. Uh, what's his name? Tim McGraw and Faith Hill are the parents, the, the singers. Mm. Yep. They're not heroes. They're, Tim McGraw and Sam Elliott are incredibly broken people who do really bad things. Because they have to, or they think they have to, but they hate themselves for it. I thought that show hit so many truisms in my philosophy of life and where we are. I couldn't stop watching it. And then I watched it again when my sister came and stayed with us because she hadn't seen it. And um, I said, well, let's watch this. And she loved it, too. And I liked it better the second time. Nice. So that's my pick. And the teen romance was really on point mm-hmm. Yeah. for what it's like to be a teenager in a situation like that, I thought. But that's only a very – that's it's like part of the show because it's told right. through the, – the narration of the – the narrator of the show is, is a 17, 18-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. But I thought some of the things she did in there were, were just – kind of stripping all the bullshit of society's rules away and just saying 
don't tell me what's right or wrong because of your rules. Tell me what's right or wrong because I'm a human being. Mm-hmm. And I really loved it. I just really loved that show. I, Very cool. Big thumbs up for that show from me. Fantastic. And I don't like a lot of shows. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Then that's that's high praise right there. All right. Well, so we've got we've got now all sorts of reading to do, all sorts of games to play, and now good television to watch. And I have a question before we go because I don't remember if I ever asked Bob this before. Uh, the painting behind you, right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, the, yeah. What is what it? What about it? What is it? It's it's the cover of the fourth book in the seven book original Demon Wars series oh. called Mortalis, which I still think is the best book I've ever written. I okay. really do. And mm-hmm. most people who read it will agree with me, I think. And Keith Parkinson did that. And I had wanted to Keith was doing all the Dragonlance books when yeah. I was doing yeah. Realm. So I was getting I mean, I wasn't I, I can't complain what I was getting. I was getting Larry Elmore and Clyde mm-hmm. Caldwell and Jeff Easley. But, and Keith was staying with Dragonlance, so I never got to work with him. And I loved his work. Mm-hmm. And I finally got to work with him on this book. And, and the painting means a ton to me because I wrote Mortalis while I was watching my best friend die of cancer, essentially, uh-huh. my brother, Gary. Mm-hmm. And that book was cathartic for me. It got me through it. It's about a plague in this world of Corona that I created in Demon Wars, a plague in Corona. How about that? I was pressured. Yeah. That's, yeah. you just don't know, man. Something hit different later. Yeah. It's weird now. Yeah. When they was calling it the coronavirus, people were like, Hey, how'd you know about this in 1996? Um, but anyway, um, the woman in the picture actually looks a lot like my sister-in-law. Hmm. And the guy in the picture, kind of that look on his face is the look of my brother at the end. Hmm. So the painting had a lot of meaning for me. And I bought it from Keith. And then Keith passed away a couple of years later. Oh, wow. And that painting will never move from that spot while I'm still working here. And and that is a painting, not a print. It's a painting. That's nice. I have three paintings. I have that. I have the color comp for the crystal shard that Larry Elmore did. Hmm. And the cover from Streams of Silver that Clyde Caldwell did. For the that benefit of our listeners, if they go out and they look at book seven, they will see what we're, we're looking at, right? Yeah. So book seven? Book four. Book four. Book four. Oh. Yeah. So, Mortalis. yeah, go check out. The, the Demon Wars was Wars. supposed to be two trilogies. The first was the personal story of three friends and their journey. And then the second was the consequence on the bigger scale of their actions in the first trilogy. Okay as the generations went on, but I needed a bridge book between the two. And and I, Mm -hmm. it was almost like, I got to write this fourth book, Um, (laughs) you know, and then I did, but I had so much going on in my life at that time. And I knew exactly what I needed to do to bring it from three to five, that that book was like probably the most magical experience I've ever had as a writer. That's awesome. So, okay. Well, I had, I had to ask, so sorry. I'm glad you did. Yeah. It has been awesome having you on again, Bob. So other than, I, I believe you said uh, Gen Con and um, EC, a billion C's, uh, Emerald, yeah, City, EC, Comic Emerald Con. City Comic Con. Comic Con, yeah. That's going to be August for you, right? Yeah. So yeah, by the time by the time folks are hearing this, you will either be where they are already or maybe nearby. Well, uh, I think so, uh, Gen Con is the first weekend. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think we're leaving on the third here, flying out to mm-hmm. Indianapolis. 
Mm-hmm. And, and we, then we have Emerald we have City least... is the third weekend. All right, and so folks will probably be getting this episode around that around ECC. And we have a patron going to ECCC, Robert. So we're gonna we're gonna make Robert track you down and have you like sign his face or something. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> that seems totally reasonable. <laughs> Bob's like, hmm. Oh, I've signed. No. I've signed the leg once. Yeah. There you go. A guy had a tattoo and wanted me to sign it. Mm, and then nice. had the name tattooed in next to the paint, the picture of Dreads oh, wow. that he did. Okay. That's yeah. awesome. That was interesting. <laughs> it's, been fantastic. it's been fantastic having you back with us, Bob. It's been good being back with you. It's, I'm, 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 I'm public again. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> this is my it's first. An easy kind of public. Yeah. I did a, I did a couple of convention Zooms. Uh, yeah. Right when COVID started, but this is like my first in in over a year and a half, I think. <laughs> there you nice. go. Don't you feel special? I feel special. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. Yes. <laughs> Thank well, thanks you. for having me on. I appreciate it. It was awesome. Thank you. Well, time, probably past time for a new bumper. If you liked this episode, thanks. <laughs> we liked making it for you. There's lots of ways you can support us moving forward. If you did like this episode, you could give us a review at Apple or Google Podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, etc. There's lots of places out there. Wherever you listen to this podcast would be a great spot to go. Give us a couple stars, write a little review, tell folks how great we are. It would help. You could follow us on Twitter. Our account there is at FN underscore podcast. If you do that, please help us boost the signal by retweeting our stuff. You could take a look at our Facebook page and click like on it. Eh, I don't do a lot there, but it's a necessary evil. You could back us over at patreon.com slash functional nerds and throw a couple bucks our way each month. You could tell your friends about us and turn them onto the show. Any or all of that would be awesome. And I would really appreciate it, Todd. Now that this episode is over, you could also consider checking out our friends over at Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle put out an episode a week just like we do, and they talk to writers, artists, and creatives from all over the place. They have a huge back catalog of episodes and have a lot of fun doing it, which comes through in their weekly episodes. So check them out over at beyondthetrope.com. As always, thanks for listening. And don't forget to tip your server on the way out. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel! Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry. Do you know who I like? I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff 
my favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited. <laughs>